with an accent podcast. This is your co-host Matt Zemick along with Saqib Ali and our guest today is going to be our one of our in-house commentators Nick Nemiroff. You haven't heard from him in a while. We want to bring him back to look at the ATP finals and other items uh, late in this tennis year. Uh, I'm reticent to call it a tennis season but it is a tennis year for sure. We can't we can't debate that one. Uh, and before we get into our conversation with Nick, uh, just a, a brief note at the start of our podcast and our conversation, and that is you might be wondering uh, if we're going to have anything to say or explore about Alexander Zverev and his uh, off-court troubles and the allegations levied against him. And we're just going to say at the, at the forefront, you know, we didn't want to sweep this under the rug or ignore it, but we are just as certainly not going to have a deep dive into it because we do not know a whole lot about the situation. And so we feel it's not our place to just uh, throw out a lot of speculation into the air. Uh, that doesn't really serve anyone's best interest. So it's just our way of acknowledging, yes, there is a situation. Yes, it's concerning. Yes, it's troubling. Uh, but we, we need more information to make a more informed judgment about everything. So we wanted to just to offer that note as we begin our podcast. And Sakib, I know you have some very specific thoughts about recent goings on in the tennis world, this one being on the court. Sakib, take it away before we uh, begin our discussion with Nick Nemiroff. Sure, I think it's uh, just in my wheelhouse because, you know, how I'm fond of uh, or my recollections, especially from tennis, men's tennis in the 90s. And I think it was a pretty, it's a very fun stat that I want to share with the listeners here. So Novak Djokovic, who hadn't played Vienna in a very long time, came to Vienna, you know, to solidify his uh, sixth year and number one ranking, which he will be finishing the year, but he chose Vienna over Paris. And uh, it's funny, like the man who he equaled, Pete Sampras, also had a fun stop in Vienna, not planned, in 98. So 22 years later, Vienna is in the puzzle for the year-end championships. So just a throwback. Sampras wasn't having his best year, but he was determined to finish the year as number one. Pat Rafter and Marcelo Rios were breathing down his neck, and he loses early in Basel. And then all the wild cards are taken in Vienna. So Boris Becker, who's semi-retired, was only playing tour events, not majors. Sampras makes a call to him and says, hey, I need this wild card. I know you are not playing for the rankings anymore. Uh, will you let me in? And Becker being the nice guy and saying, well, sure, you deserve it more. And Sampras goes and wins Vienna. And then, you know, we all know he finished the year as uh, six year in a row as number one. And he said something later that he would give Becker an apartment or something that was a joke. But uh, I just wanted to share this because, you know, that's a special memory for me back then. And uh, even though Novak did not win in Vienna, but I think the Vienna connection was special that Vienna was being, uh, you know, such a special spot for both men in their quest to finish uh, you know, the year end number one. So that was my, you know, one minute of uh, ATP history from the 90s. And um, we'll switch the conversation to World Tour Finals. But I know, Nick, you've been meaning to talk about the Roland Garros final that was played a few weeks ago between the top two candidates who will also be in London. And uh, unpack it the way you figure is uh, relevant to the, to the ATP Tour Finals if the two men were to square off or... Uh, how that match was won tactically by Rafa, the floor is yours. Well, thank you for having me on again. I appreciate it. Excited to be back on. So one of the most interesting things from that French Open final 
in my opinion, was um, how aggressive Nadal was playing and uh, how much offensive initiative he took in the match. And after the match, I thought to myself, well, if he continues to play with this type of mindset, with this type of aggression, it should suit him well on other surfaces. Uh, obviously, you know, on clay, he's less inclined to be as aggressive as he would be on a hard court or a grass court. Um, and that has definitely been, you know, the way it's been in the past. Um, and what we saw in Paris was, you know, against Zverev that Nadal was not as aggressive, obviously, as he was uh, in, in, in the French Open final. And in the past, you know, he's never, he's never won the World Tour finals. And I think the level of aggression that he showed against Djokovic in the final is something that, you know, would suit him well on other surfaces and I would love to see him uh, apply that in the world tour finals especially if he plays someone like Djokovic um when Nadal is aggressive I think that's his his best version of himself despite the fact that he can do so many other things well you know on clay it's all about the top spin and the defense but I think if he adds that offense on clay it's he's just unstoppable and but I do think he needs to add it on other surfaces because he can't rely on that defense um, and his topspin as much, and especially on an indoor hard court where the ball typically is bouncing a little bit uh, lower, uh, it, it's tougher for him to get the ball out of his opponent's strike zone. So he's got to use more of the forehand down the line. He's got to run around and play uh, inside out forehands more often as opposed to just relying on um, breaking down his opponent with the heavy cross court topspin forehand. So I'd look for him to be, more aggressive in the world tour finals. I'd love to see that with him. And I think one thing he was great with in the match against Djokovic was that backhand cross court stepping in and, and, and cracking that down the line, uh, cross court sharply angled. Love to see him do that in the world, world tour finals. I think that would really suit him well and uh, maybe allow him to uh, get his first ever title there. So I think, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a match. If it does happen and uh, maybe we can bring you back to see if uh, you know that game plan will be effective. But like you said, it's a slightly different code and Novak has dominated this tournament. And it's a surprising stat that he hasn't won here uh, in, since 2015 when he beat Federer in the final. So on that note, uh, Matt, I mean, uh, you want to start with like, you know, the eight guys here. Is there, an, you know, actually Nick, is there any surprise entry here? And then I'm sure Matt has a lot of follow-up questions on each player. But is there any surprise entry, according to you, Nick, in the, in the field this year? Diego Schwartzman being the last confirmation. I mean, if you, a surprise in the sense of if you had asked me before 2020 started with one of these players. Oh, before be COVID. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Like, you know, Schwartzman and Rublev, I would not have, you know, picked to, to make the World Tour Finals. But it's funny, if you look at the rest of the, the top 16, Federer would obviously probably be in there if he was healthy. But... I mean, these two guys are probably the two best players right now. I mean, even non COVID notwithstanding, uh, looking at, you know, Berrettini, Monfils, Raonic, Shapovalov, Baltisa Gu, Gofan, and Kareno Busta. Um, I mean, Rublev and, and, and Schwartzman um, are definitely like the two best players outside of those to- other top six. Uh, and it's great to see two guys like that in there, especially Rublev, who has won five tournaments this year. Uh, it's great to see someone like him in there. And both guys are super fun. I feel like they're two guys who a lot of fans really like. They're really fun players to watch. Rublev with his super intense forehand. 
He throws everything into every shot. Really haven't seen a forehand quite like that in a while. I mean, Del Potro is is definitely close, but I think his power is more easily produced. And Schwartzman at his height, someone I'm I'm myself I'm five six, so Schwartzman is someone who I you know admire and someone who inspires me as a as a tennis player on a, on a personal level. So to see these two guys at the world tour finals is, is going to be awesome. I think Rublev has better chances of doing well on an indoor hard court, but it should be uh, super fun to watch. Okay, Nick. So, you know, we, we do this every year uh, before the ATP finals. We also do it before the WTA finals. I mean, obviously that's not happening this year, but you know, before the, this eight player tournament, uh, we always play around with possible matchups. And as we record this podcast, you know, the draw hasn't been announced, but we know that, you know, one or two is going to be in one half and then three or four, five or six, seven or eight. So I'm sure you've played around at least a little bit, Nick, with possible matchups. Is there uh, a lineup you'd like to see in the two groups that would, that would bring out, you know, more, more of the matches you're interested in seeing in London? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, just looking at at the the eight players here, I think the one matchup that I would love to see that I don't know if they've actually I'm actually looking it up now to see if they've actually played um, would be Rublev versus Djokovic. Looks like they haven't played um, Rublev versus Djokovic just to see, you know, how how. Rublev would approach that match because, you know, he definitely wants to take the offensive initiative and really go after his forehand. But against Novak, it's so easy to, to be, to be drawn into errors you customarily wouldn't be making. Um, so I think that would be a super, a super fun match uh, to watch. Uh, another one that I would like to, would love to watch would be uh, Medvedev versus Schwartzman. I think uh, that could be a match where you get a lot of super long rallies. I think, of the the eight players here, they're probably the two most um, probably the most defensive minded um, in the sense that they're going to, they're going to run down a lot of balls. I mean, Nadal is probably there too. Um, but I think that would be a super fun uh, matchup to watch. Uh, and then uh, Sitsipas and Medvedev, I think always have, you know, they have their, you know, their past incidents uh, seeing them play again would be super fun. I think they're really good clash in styles, considering Sitsipas uh, can move forward. Medvedev's playing a, a much more defensive style. He's going to run everything down. Um, so I would I would be curious to see how that would play out as well. Um, and then of course, seeing the top the top three, Djokovic, Nadal, and team. Um, you know, you're probably you know at some point they're going to you're going to get some variation of those three playing. Um, and I think those are this year, those are th- the three best players in the world by far. Uh, so seeing okay, those Nick. guys plays is still exciting. Yeah, Nick, let me jump in and then I'll turn sure. it over to Socket for, for, for his next uh, round of questions. But I just have to follow up there. Having mentioned Nadal Djokovic team, three best in the world. So if you had to choose, Nick, wh- mm-hmm. where would you rather have team fall in terms of play- being in Djokovic's group or Nadal's group? In other words, we get, we get a guaranteed team match against one of the top two uh you know a possible semi with the other on on uh, the weekend the coming weekend of the atp finals but in round robin play we'd get a guaranteed match if you know team is in one of the two 
groups. So which would you want to see more, Team Djokovic or Team Nadal? I would certainly want to see Team Djokovic more. Definitely. I mean, given Nadal's history at the World Tour Finals, I think his his record actually in the World Tour Finals lifetime is off the top of my head. The last time I looked at it is 18 and 14. He's never he's never won the event. And Djokovic has obviously won the event uh, five times. Um, and team and Djokovic played that outstanding match of the World Tour Finals last year. Uh, I really think this has proven to be a very difficult tournament for Nadal. It's at the end of the year. It's on a surface. He doesn't prefer to usually really struggles at this tournament. So um, I definitely would rather see team Djokovic. Do you feel the same way? You know what? I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to say team okay. Nadal because Nadal won the French open in an indoor final. So, I mean, that's, that's a, a little point. plot twist there. And uh, sure. Nadal is not beaten up. He's not physically worn down at the end of a an, at the end of a year, which is usually why he doesn't do well at this event. I mean, I mean the indoor element, yes, that's a component, but Nadal is usually physically roasted at this time of year, and this year, of course, he's not. So that's that's different, and so that makes uh, Team Nadal interesting for me. Sakev, what do you have for Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'll uh, plenty, but I'll focus on Daniel Medvedev because the man just won his third Masters one thousand title in Bercy taking out Sasha Zverev in the final. And last year, he, like uh, Matt just said, uh, in reference to Nadal, that Medvedev, I think, was fatigued by the time he reached this tournament and he did not win a match. And this year, things are a little different. He, after Clay, I think uh, he lost in St. Petersburg to Riley Opelka, then lost to Kevin Anderson, Vienna, and then he wins the tournament in Bercy. So, Nick, what do you make of his surge in Bercy and... Uh, there is a thing called momentum in tennis. How do you fancy the Russian here in his second outing at the tour finals? Uh, of course, he would like to get on the board first because nobody wants to go 0-3 in this elite company. But uh, and Of course, we don't have the draw, but uh, like the matchups that Matt had mentioned and uh, break, break down his chances. What do you see uh, of his form and uh, who would you like to see him go against in this tournament? Well, I think he's talented enough to beat anyone on any day. I'm a big fan of his game. He can play offense. He can play defense. He has a very unique return positioning, standing so far back behind the baseline. He hits with few RPMs, He doesn't, meaning he doesn't hit with a ton of top spin. Um, I, I saw the other day that the, one of the only players who actually hits less than him is uh, Dave Munar. Uh, and Med. Medvedev is able to uh, get to the net. He is super athletic for and moves super well for his height. And he uh, can uh, really go big off both serves, which I think we saw a lot of last year, uh, especially in that, that one Cincinnati match against Djokovic where uh, he was really going for huge second serves. Um, so, I mean, I, I like his chances. I mean, I like his chances and, you know, as Matt was saying last year, he was cooked and he lost all three matches and he should have won the one against Nadal where he was right there at the end and lost after leading five, one in the third set. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love watching his game. I love seeing him again. As I said, I'd love to see him play um, Sitsi Paz, but I'd also like to see him. I think I'd like to see him play team again um, just to see what he might do differently uh, from the U S open match where I felt like he really let team, I mean, team played a great match, but I really think he let team uh, take the initiative way too early. 
uh, and way too often. And I don't think he used enough of his own offensive firepower, which is certainly there. Uh, and I always like to watch him play Djokovic just to see if he's going to, how much he's going to throw in that down the middle stuff that Jill Simone threw against Djokovic in the Australian Open a few years ago, where that match where Djokovic made 100 unforced errors, but still won in five sets. So I'd like to see Medvedev Djokovic as well. That would be, uh, that'd be super fun. And, you know, I'm sure the, the two Russians wouldn't mind playing each other either like they did uh, in the U.S. Open. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a match I would also uh, be glued to uh, on the TV set uh, to see Rublev, Medvedev. But yeah, I think you make some excellent points uh, with his matchup uh, against the top two. So the other guy, you know, who, who won here uh, last year is Stefano Tsitsipas. So he, he's a guy like who's, who seemed like, you know, he played a great fourth set against Novak Djokovic. Uh, and Roland Garros, and then had physical problem. He was cramping, and then since then, he's, I think he's carried a niggle. So, is he someone you know? A lot of people have a lot of high hopes of him, the the way he plays. And is he someone on your radar in this tournament to repeat? I know it's a big ask because he's still they're still very young, uh, early days for Sitsipas. But do you think he his uh, post COVID season has uh, inspired confidence and in, you know in your abilities as a you know, tennis analyst, can he go all the way in this elite field one more time? Again, we don't know the draw, but just looking at the potential matchups. I would guess no, based off what we've seen from him since that post-French Open match. I mean, he's only played two tournaments, but he's lost early in both. Um, he lost to Dimitrov in, in Vienna and Bear in, in Paris. Uh, and, you know, it's tough right now in this type of year to really, like, go off anything else other than, than recent form. That's really all we really have right now. Um, so, and to repeat at an event like this, where it's the top eight players in the world, it's so difficult. And I really think I, you know, we haven't gotten into it yet, but I really think, I, I think Djokovic is going to be uh, really hungry for this one. Um, so I think anyone stopping Djokovic in this event is going to be tough. Uh, but Hey, you know, these are the best eight players in the world right now. Any of them can win on any given day. But if I was guessing, I would say Sitsipas is not going to repeat. Sure. So, Matt, I know you have follow-up questions here, but let me ask you one. Uh, which is one matchup for Stefano Sitsipas that you would like to watch during this week of the ATP Finals? <sighs> Sitsipas. Um, <clears throat> it's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I mean, Medvedev would be the number one. But um, if not Medvedev, I think... Team Sitsipas, given that that was the final last year, and given the the uh, one-handed back backhand rallies that these two have exhibited in the past, that are, have been so fun to watch, and they are the uh, only two one-handers this year. Uh, now that Federer is out, um, I would say uh, Team Sitsipas would be a, a super fun one to watch, and I'm sure they would love to play each other again after last year's final. Okay, Nick. So, you know, this has been an unprecedented, one-of-a-kind year. And one of the defining elements of this year, Nick, is that the players had five, six months off. Five, six months in which they, you know, they didn't know exactly when they were going to be returning, but they had a lot of downtime. They were able to spend time with their families, able to spend time alone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, And it was up to them. They had a choice of how they wanted to use all that downtime, uh, training, technique, 
And we certainly saw like, a, for example, on the women's side, uh, Iga Sviatek, uh obviously beefed up her game uh, to the point that she was able to demolish everyone at Roland Garros. As we look at this field of eight, what what do you see in terms of what any of the players you can make an you can make an overview you can look at one player you can do what you want with this question but what have you seen in terms of how any of the players at the ATP finals uh, did something during the hiatus the pandemic hiatus to change their game to change their approach and uh, and what it might mean for this upcoming tournament in London do you mind if I give an answer on something that someone should have changed but did not. Of course, go anywhere you want. So I think the most obvious thing is is Zverev's serve. I mean, we knew before, we've known for a long time that his serve uh, has been a liability, particularly second serve. Um, you know, he can blast. The question is, how? Why can why can he blast first serves, but and he can't blast second serves, or he's just inconsistent on the second serve. Um, and if you look at the way that he serves, he actually, when most players serve, uh, there's going to be, uh, 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 the, the tossing arm is going to lead the motion. So if you were to watch Federer serve, you see his tossing arm go up and then the racket is following slightly behind. If you watch Zverev, that uh, separation is, is massive. Um, and it causes uh, a lack of rhythm in the serve and it causes him to, to, to have a slight pause in the motion. Um, and clearly this has not changed. Um, he also has a, a pretty high toss, uh, as a result of the fact of the fact that he's stopping his racket in the beginning, this is getting pretty technical. It would be easier to explain over video, but the point is Zverev's serve service technique should have changed. I've said for years, and another player who was in the world tour finals in past years, Nishikori, another one who, you know, over this pandemic, his service technique should have changed. It really should have. I mean, to me, there's really no reason why you shouldn't have, um, or at least something should look different. I mean, you have to see that there's, it's just a glaring weakness. Uh, and maybe it's just, maybe it's just something that they're comfortable with and they don't want to change. And, uh, it's just, maybe it's just easy for me as a coach to say, look, this is, this is pretty clear. Uh, and, but it's probably much tougher, um, from their end, but I would say that Zavera of serve, and we saw it in that you know, U.S. Open final. One of the most stunning parts of the U.S. Open to me was when Zverev was down match point in the fifth set tiebreaker to team. Um, and he had a second serve and team was standing like five feet behind the baseline. And Zverev had just thrown in double fault after double fault. And team, yeah, team was still standing so far behind the baseline against a guy who was clearly feeling pressure on a shot that has been proven to be inconsistent. And um, Zverev ended up winning the point. And um, so, uh, you know, to me, that was just a sign of how nervous both of those guys were. But the, the number one shot that should have been changed that wasn't would be the Zverev serve. Anything you're looking at tactically in the upcoming uh, ATP finals in terms of, you know, th th this is going to be the last event before, you know, the Australian 2021 Australian Open. Is there uh, something that any of these players, and again, you can focus on any of the eight, uh, mm -hmm. in any combination, is there something that uh, one of these players needs to say, hey, I need to find this answer, this solution, against this opponent going into 2021 20, so that 
my weaknesses are, you know, uh, shored up, uh, that, that my, I, there's less of a, an opening for, for this opponent to attack me. So that next season, you know, I'm going to have a more fortified tennis game, uh, that's going to be able to stand up, uh, anything like that, that you see in the ATP finals in terms of a specific matchup, uh, that might have uh, real world relevance carrying over into 2021. Tactical, right? Sure. Is that, is that okay? So yeah, I would say you know for Nadal in particular, uh, I think it's the easiest one to look at. I think on clay, you know, when Nadal struggles, uh, he struggles against opponents who are able to take the ball early, who are able to produce depth, um, who are on, on particularly on faster surfaces and particularly to his forehand side. And we saw in his two of his, his, his weakest years, 2015 and 2016, that he was constantly leaving his forehand short. And we've constantly found throughout his career, as time has gone on, um, that if you can get deep and hard to his, his forehand, you can find success. Now, it's only the, the top players who are doing it, um, like Djokovic and Federer and team. Um, and, you know, Zverev in this most past, uh, most recent event in Paris. Um, but overall, I would say if Nadal can figure out a way to withstand that depth and pace to his forehand side, which may require him to make a slight technical change. Uh, if you look at his forehand when he first started on tour, it looks a bit different than it does now. If you, when, he, when he turns his racket, if you look at his racket, if you were going in slow motion, you would see the racket face slightly open when he turns, which is a slight inconsistency, a slight hitch in the swing that you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't ideally have, which he didn't have earlier in his career. This just means it takes longer for him to get to the ball. And on slower surface like clay, it's not as problematic because he has more time. But on a faster surface like grass or a hard court, this slight hitch in the swing is going to cause him to, to produce a lack of depth. Um, especially against an opponent like Novak. So I think if he, Nadal wants to keep increasing that slam tally and get some slams out, outside of the French Open, that would be one thing that he would need to look for is to produce depth off that forehand, more depth off that forehand side. Yeah, I can come in uh, for a question on Andre Rublev. I know you compare his power mm -hmm. to Martin Del Potro. His stock is on the rise. The guy's won five titles. And if you even look at, uh, I think, middle of last year, he won, I think, two more titles somewhere. So he's had seven or eight titles. And uh, he's mixed it up with the big boys. But uh, in my tennis ecosystem, which is not predominantly on Twitter, we have a lot of friends who discuss tennis. And Tsitsipas, Shapovalov, Medvedev, all these names get a lot of mentions. And uh, Rublev just doesn't get any enough mention. So I'm not saying, you know, but there are a lot of like people who know his game on tennis Twitter, but from a tactical point of view, if you're going to break down his game to someone, uh, the reason for the success, because he doesn't have a big frame. And for, for a couple of years ago, if you looked at his game, it looked like he's not going anywhere. But all of a sudden, you know, looks like uh, sky is a ceiling for this guy. But still, there are not a lot of buyers, at least in my ecosystem. So it's more like a personal question. How would you break down his assets and his, his surge? that's, you know, brought him all the way to London this year? Yeah, it's a, a great question. Um, I mean, this year he's, it's, he's 40 and eight, which is uh, crazy. And, uh, you know, he's won, I think he's, he's won seven titles in his career and, and five of them have come uh, this year. Uh, I think 
the, the thing to know about Rublev's game is that he is very, very, uh, I think, consistent as far as you know what you're getting from him. You know you're getting a lot of intensity. You know you're getting someone who's going to come out and leave it all on the table every match. Obviously, you're getting a guy with a, a, a pretty blistering forehand. Um, pretty athletic, good court coverage, good movement. Um, I think the question is, does he have enough outside of that forehand to contend with the top players? I mean, in his career is eight and 15 versus the top 10. Um, he's three and three this year. So while he's won, you know, almost 80, over 80% of his matches, he's just three and three versus, uh, the top 10 this year. Um, so I think moving forward, that's the big question for him. I mean, you saw him get to that, he got to that semifinal match with, uh, or not a uh, quarterfinal match with Medvedev at the, uh, at the U S open. And, uh, he lost in straight sets. And I think that, I think that if you're someone in Rublev's camp or you had stock in Rublev, I think that is the, uh, the question for him. I think the other, the other thing to consider with, with someone like Rublev is, you know, is how much he's really putting into like destroying all these forehands. Is it sustainable? Um, just as we maybe wondered earlier in Del Potro's career is what he was doing off the forehand side, uh, sustainable. Um, and uh, let me just intervene there. So I, I've, I think read somewhere on Twitter, comparisons were being made to Agassi and Davidenko. So do you see these valid comparisons that he's taking it on the rise and just, it's like a ball machine basically just keeps coming back with, with fierce velocity. Do you see those comparisons as valid? Uh, no, not really. I mean, he takes it early. Uh, he definitely takes it early, but I mean, Davidenko in particular was just was he was on another level as far as how early he took it. I mean, he was he's way closer um, to the baseline on a typical basis than than Rublev is, and uh, and you know Rublev, you know he has a solid backhand, but Agassi is is probably the best as far as from a technical perspective, probably the best two handed backhand. Uh, you know, I mean, Djokovic is up there too, but Agassi is right there as far as like the best two-handed backhand technique of all time. So, um, yeah, I, I would not put Rublev in, in either of their categories. Um, but I mean, what he does with his forehand is a bit different. I mean, he goes after it more than like pretty much anyone, um, but he definitely isn't taking it as early as either of those two guys. Okay, I'll let you take a breather. So this is a question for you, Matt. I know we're going a little against the grain, but, uh, you know, we do these things sometime when you come back <laughs> to the show. Uh, so I know you talked about the season fatigue. Rublev is one guy who's played a lot of matches, even in this, like, you know, this weird cut short, you know, unprecedented season. Do you think that's going to be a factor when he takes on this field? Because a lot of times this field does to people, you know, because it's the top eight. So what are your expectations for Rublev, Matt? What is a good week for him? Can he go all the way? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to say something that I've said a lot uh, in in women's tennis over the past year, and that is that I don't have a clue what's going to happen in London. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it might that that answer might be getting boring because of how repetitive it is. But, you know, it's just a different circumstance. It's not the kind of context that we're used to having. And so they're just there's no set template. And I, and I would, but I would say that if, you know, I had to say anything about Rublev, it's that the very fact that we haven't really had a tennis season so much as a collection of scattered events, that certainly gives Rublev a chance. Cause it's not as though, it's not as though he's been playing for 10 months. Um, you know, it's not as though he's been doing the long-term heavy lifting. 
and he didn't go to the semis of either of the two major tournaments. So, and you know, he, while he's played a lot of matches in a relatively compressed period, he hasn't uh, broken his body down at the major tournaments to, to that extent. I mean, he, he did some heavy lifting at the U S open uh, for sure. Uh, so um I, I don't think that he has – I think his body will be up to it because this this uh, year has been more of a – if not a sprint, it's been more like a middle distance race than a marathon. So I think that favors him. Uh, I, I would I would now like to ask Nick. I did have a Rublev question for Nick, and that is that at the U.S. Open, um, Rublev came back from two two-to-one set deficits a few times and he's also he also had a run of where like he w- w- when opponents served for sets against Rublev he broke them like seven out of eight instances in which an opponent was serving for a set. I mean that's crazy. Um, Nick, what what is Rublev doing on his return, or what is he finding in his return game uh, that's enabling him to to break serve? in so many clutch situations when he's on the verge of losing sets? Yeah, well, I think well, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I did not know that he was that effective in those types of situations, which is incredibly impressive. I think, I think when you watch him play, you know, my guess as to why this would be the case with him would be that, that again, he's just so willing to stick to his guns. He's going to go, He's going to go after the forehand. He's going to pretty much approach all of these return games in the same manner. He's going to really put the you know put the pressure on his opponent. He's going to ask his opponent opponents the tough the tough questions. Uh, I think there's also a sense with probably a sense with his opponents that you know they're not going to get out of these sets easy. Um, that it's going to require a lot uh, to get through. He's just not going to give things up like some other players might um, in those situations. Uh, so I think it might, you know, for, it might be a, a mental, a mental thing, uh, as far as Rublev is concerned as to why he's doing so well, uh, in these types of situations. I mean, the guy really is, really is a great fighter and he's a good example of, of how to conduct yourself on the court as far as, you know, giving full intensity every single point. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to be said, uh, said for that, especially near the end of the set where, uh, you know, the set has transpired and, you know, you might be feeling a little fatigued from a physical or mental or both uh, perspective. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that translates against the best players in the world who do not get broken as often. All right, Nick, and let me ask this question. This is not a Rublev question, uh, but Mm -hmm. I'm interested in getting your thoughts on Dominic Team or or really any of the uh, non-Nadal, non-Djokovic players in London. And that is that, you know, if if someone other than Nadal and Djokovic wins these ATP finals, it, it, if which player would be poised to, to have the biggest breakout in 2021 uh, by winning the ATP finals? And just as kind of a background, you know, Sitsipas won it last year, and it didn't lead to the sensa- a sensational breakout season. And I mean, in team in 2020, very clearly established himself as the best non-big three player uh, by what partly by winning the U.S. Open partly by beating Rafa at the Australian and pushing Djokovic five uh, in Melbourne 
but he didn't win the ATP finals. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard question to get a grasp on, but from this vantage point, which non big three player uh, could gain the most potentially uh, by winning the ATP finals? That is a great question. A really difficult question. I think just if you look at the last, you know, winners since 2016, Murray in 2016 didn't have a great 2017, you know, Dimitrov won in 2017, didn't follow it up in 2018. And then really the same with Zverev and, and, and Sitsipas the last two years, you know, you'd expect bigger things from them having won uh, the world tour finals. Um, so I would say I think the most obvious choice because, you know, Zverev has won it. Sitsipas has won it. Uh, team has won a slam now. Um, Nadal and Djokovic obviously have won what they've won. So uh, I would have to say, I think the obvious choice would, would be, would be Medvedev um, given that, you know, at the end of last year, after the U S open in my eyes, it's like, all right, this is the guy who's going to win the first, he's going to be the one who's going to slow down the big three eventually and time you know, it's, it's still, you know, time, there's still time to see who's going to do that. Uh, but I would say that uh, Medvedev definitely has the most to gain. And I think he wants to prove like, okay, I can still do this. I'm still right there with Sitsipas and Zverev and team as far as challenging the big three. So Medvedev would be, would be my choice on that one. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's again, uh, you can't go wrong with a choice. And I think just adding to Matt's, uh, Matt's question, I'll stick with Dominic team and Matt pretty much put everything in there that he is the difference between the big three and the next layer. So uh, focusing on his ability, uh, he won in Vienna last year, played a hell of a match against Djokovic, then losing in a close final to Sitsipas. If firing on full cylinders, uh, I mean, how surprised will you be if team wins this tournament? And uh, secondly, what does this do to his overall, uh, you know, credential in your view? I mean, is he approaching big four status? I know it's, uh, you know, it's only one slam, but if he only takes stock of last 20 to 18 months, he's right up there. He's played two major finals. He's won Indian Wells. And uh, he's always a threat on clay. And uh, we're still waiting for his first Masters 1000 clay. But overall team, the player, if you just take stock of last 20 months, uh, is that a fair assessment? I know I can get trouble on Twitter by calling him Big Four, but if you just take <laughs> recent events into reckoning and break it down. Yeah, I mean, you know, for those, some listening know that I may know that I've started a little account on Twitter with the Big Three. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, in the last year or so, like the Big Three has been Djokovic, Nadal, and team. There's really little question about that. Um Though I would be, I would be pretty surprised if Team wins this event. Just given again recent form, I mean, at Roland Garros, he looked absolutely gassed in that fifth set against Schwartzman, and that was obviously a brutal match. The first four sets, three of the sets were tiebreakers. One was seven five, and it wasn't like these guys were uh, serving and volleying and ending points quickly. And he also played a guy in that in that fourth round, Gaston, the French young French player who was just drop shotting him left and right. I think he drop shot it over 50 times. So team clearly uh, was put through the, you know, he was put through the ropes physically. Um, and then, you know, he just played, he played Vienna and he lost to Rublev. Um, and, you know, fatigue. I, and I think Matt made a great point earlier about how the season is shorter. 
So someone like Nadal may, may have better chance than London. But the thing about team is that, I don't know, did team really take a break? I mean, it seemed like he played more tennis during the, the quarantine than he might've played otherwise. He, he never stops. And this is what he's, he's done throughout his career. So uh, I, I think of all the players, team is definitely the most likely to uh, struggle from a physical perspective in, in London, given what he did during uh, quarantine, um, during the, the world's quarantine, so to speak. Uh, and um, it'll be interesting to see what he does here. And I think if he, I think win or lose, I really don't think it makes a, a, a huge difference for him moving forward. I think he's confident where he stands. And I think he's comfortable with his, you know, with his outlook moving forward. Sure. Uh, let's bring in uh, Sasha Zverev, uh, you know, of course, for, let's stick to his tennis. And even for his tennis, there are a lot of commentators on Twitter and uh, a lot of advice. Uh, he's partnered with David Ferrer right after or during the COVID. And then uh, he's had quite a stellar, uh, uh, I think, season If you since tennis reopened. He loses to Andy Murray and then he's played all finals except one, I think, tournament, which is Roland Garros, where he loses uh, to Yannick Sinner. So, tactically, are there any things that you are able to see uh, what Zverev or Ferrer has brought to Zverev's game? Because I see a lot of resolve. He's won a lot of ugly matches, he's, which has become a feature. The grind, the fight, you know, even the throwing of occasional racket, you know, Zverev is there for the long run. He's in there. But have you seen anything tactically that Zverev wasn't doing? And, of course, you already discussed the serve. But overall, game-wise, do you see any improvements? Can you pinpoint any? I mean, it definitely seems like in the in, in this year that he's he's doing better in closer matches. Which, you know, if you're being if you're being, you know, coached and consulted, and you're consulting with David Ferrer, you know, a mental giant of the sport for sure, uh, then that would seem to be a likely you know outcome. Uh, at the same time, I honestly can't say that I've seen too much different in his game from a tactical perspective. Um, and I think, again, it, oh, for him, you know, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think it really just hinges – his game really hinges on the second serve. He's, you know, pretty capable offensively and defensively. Uh, and Like Medvedev for his height, you know, I think they're both 6'6". Six, six. He's great. He's a, he's a really good mover. Um, but I think the whole thing for him throughout, the, throughout these, you know, last couple of years has been mental, especially when he gets, gets into slams. And we saw it in the fifth set of that U.S. Open. I mean, that was just, you know, it was a, a, a dramatic match from, how it, from the standpoint of how it played out. But from a pure tennis perspective, it was not his, you know, his, it wasn't his finest tennis. And there was definitely a lot of, you know, what people would call choking involved. So, um, I mean, I uh, definitely... he's, he's not a natural at the net, but do you see him being more comfortable at the net? Because he did a lot of that in, the, in that U.S. Open run. He approached yeah, the yeah, a lot. no, I definitely think that. Yeah, I definitely think. Uh, I mean, now that I think about it, yeah, um, maybe he did play more at the net. He definitely. I remember in the fifth set, he was moving forward a lot, which I thought was 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 a smart strategy because his team was clearly uh, superior from the baseline. And I think you know when you're six six, you have to go to the net, like you just have to. Um, you know, I think there's just the whole idea these days. Oh, it's modern tennis; you can't go to the net which, you know, if you're doing it correctly and you're doing it in a balanced and, and measured way, you, you, Zverev show that you clearly you can. All right, Nick, uh, let's talk about Diego Schwartzman. You know, he played uh, some memorable matches in this, this brief, uh, you know, abbreviated tennis year. And, he, and more specifically, he played those memorable matches against 
uh, Nadal and Djokovic uh, in, Ro- in Rome, and then Nadal specifically at Roland Garros. Uh, you know, so he's he's has he's been battle tested against the very best. Uh, if he plays either one of them in London, what is the extra ingredient he has to bring to the table if he's going to pull off a surprise and perhaps make his way through to the semis? What what can Diego do? to add to his toolbox uh, to give himself an extra edge on players who, you know, he, he, he played uh, Nadal, he beat Nadal in Rome and he played Djokovic competitively in Rome, but that was of course on clay. So what can he do to change the equation on hard court? Great question. I think the first thing is, you know, just from a mental standpoint, he's the last player to qualify. He's also the shortest player in the event. I think, you know, he's got to go in believing that he belongs with the rest of the group. You, know, you always hear Brad Gilbert talk about, uh, you know, in, in, in matches where you're playing the big three, oh, well, the, the opponent was already down 3-0 coming out of the locker room, meaning that from a mental standpoint, they were already, you know, telling themselves that they have an uphill battle to climb. And because of that, they get nervous and they lose the first couple of games. You know, I don't think that will happen with Schwartzman. I think you know, he, I think he'll be primed and ready, but it, it is important for him to, to tell himself that he does belong and that he's earned his spot in this event, which he, he, he rightly has. I think, you know, he's someone who, uh, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, he's, you know, he's going to run down and he's going to get to a lot of balls, but he also does have that potential to take the ball early and play offense. It should be said for sure. And you're playing on an indoor hard court. You can't against this group of players, like Sitsipas and Zverev and team uh, and Rublev who are all going to be aggressive. You, you can't just rely on that. You've got to bring your own aggression to the table. I think one area where he's going to struggle uh, relative to other players, like, um, you know, someone like a Medvedev who can really blast the first serve. He's going to get a lot more free points. Someone like Schwartzman is just not. So one thing that he could do is really think smartly about how he's going to serve. Uh, what types of serve he's going to use, what locations are best against which opponents. Um, And he needs to figure out how how he can win his own free points off serves because, you know, it just doesn't have to only be about serving fast. It can be about smart placement, smart location, and really opening up the court in intelligent ways. Um, And I think, you know, you know, this is just a coach of me, but like, he just needs to have fun. Like this could be a once in a lifetime opportunity for him to be in the world tour finals in a, in a unique year to be in the top eight. Um, So I think, you know, you got to go back to the roots of of why you play tennis. You play tennis because it's fun and uh, just having fun against these guys. uh, I think, I think that that can't be understated. If I was, you know, coaching him, I would tell him, go out there, have fun and enjoy yourself. So, yeah, we covered almost all guys now except the two leading men. So let's talk about Rafa Nadal. You've already mm-hmm. talked about him. Uh, what will it take for him to get over the hump again? You know, doesn't really need this tournament to enhance his resume. He's won pretty much everything. But then this is a big title that he does need. So, you know, the conversation is there always. And like Matt said, he's always come in fatigued. Uh, most often than not, and playing, you know, long hours you know, in a long season. This year, he's only played few tournaments. So what will it take, draw-wise or game-wise, for, for, you know, for Rafa to click and add this you know, missing title to his illustrious resume? Draw-wise, I definitely think he uh, would love to get uh, Schwartzman in his, in his draw, for sure. 
Um, I definitely think he would want to see someone like Medvedev as well. Um, just in the sense of he wants to, I don't think, I think he wants to try to avoid the big hitters. I think he wants to, you know, get, get into matches where he can actually rally a little bit and try to impose his own playing style uh, and play a more balanced blend of offense and defense. Whereas, you know, against someone like um, Sitsi Potser, Zverev, he probably is going to feel like, all right, I'm going to be, I'm probably going to, in all likelihood, unless I really ramp up the aggression, I'm probably going to be playing more on the defensive. So I think it's going to require that. I think just overall, I mean, I think throughout Nadal's career, he has been most effective on hard courts when he's being aggressive, using that backhand cross court, using the forehand down the line, being aggressive off serve. Remember in that 2010 U.S. Open where he really – uh, up the ante on his serve and was really going for big serves. I'd like to see him do that again because it's clear that he has that capability. He's just gotta he's just gotta go out there and, and use it. So I think you know this is an indoor hardcore tournament. You know aggression's going to pay off, and um, that's what I think Nadal needs to do to gain his first title in at the World Tour Finals. Nick, let me ask my Nadal question, and that is that. You know, what, the, the, the thing that stood out to me in the Roland Garros final against Djokovic was Nadal hitting his cross-court backhand short. Uh, yep. he, hit, he hit his cross-court backhand much more horizontally or diagonally, not so much vertically. So he stretched the court wide, and that was a plot twist. That, that you know, it, it changed the hitting zone and the hitting angle for Djokovic, and so he brought – he forced Djokovic to move upward – into the court and he pulled Djokovic out of just that comfortable side to side movement that, that, you know, we normally associate with power baseline tennis. He, he kind of pulled Djokovic out of that string and uh, by drawing him in short, and, you know, it was just a, it was a little nuance that was a big part of his winning tactics uh, with Carlos Moya. Uh, so my main question, Nick is on a hard court, how, uh, sustainable, how transferable is that clay court tactic to the hard courts that we're going to see in London? Well, it's a really good question. I think, I think it, it, it's going to be, it's going to be tougher. I mean, having more time to set up for the shot to create such an angle makes it easier. There's just no question about that. At the same time, I think the doll, you know, has been successful creating those cross court angles. But I also think he's been successful in just driving the backhand cross court where maybe it's not as sharp of an angle, um, but he still drives it uh, toward the sideline uh, at an angle that is not really attainable for the opponent or one where the opponent has a tough time covering. So maybe it's not as sharply spun, but it is still driven through the court. And I think in the past, he's used that cross-court backhand really effectively. And uh, I think it's going to be tougher, but he certainly has to try to use it. I think if he expects himself to win this tournament, he's got to use that shot effectively. It's, it's such a great shot, and it's one that I think he hits as well uh, as anyone else. Okay, so last but not the least, I'm sure Matt has a question too for Novak, so I can go first. Again, a surprising stat that, you know, he hasn't won this in four years. Of course, did not uh, play at the end of uh, 2017. Uh, loses the final to Zverev and then loses that final to Murray. Last year, uh, loses to 
to team in, in Tsitsipas, if I'm not mistaken. So, mm-hmm. uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to steal Matt's line when he was talking about US Open. He said, anything but a Djokovic win would be a surprise because this is that kind of fear. So, he lost the French final, you know, uh, did not have, you know, much, you know, energy display. I think, you know, he had personal reasons because of someone's death. And then he feel fatigued in Vienna. We can always take that loss against Sonego out. Uh, he's clearly the man to beat, in my view, you know, because he has to set that record straight that he hasn't won here in more than four years. Uh, so what is it going to take for a non-Djokovic win? I mean, do you also see him as an overwhelming favorite? And uh, yeah, unpack it the way you want, how Novak Djokovic comes in this week. Yeah, I do see him as the as the clear favorite. I think he's going to be inspired not having won either of the slams this year. He also, um, you know, I think he also wants to set himself on good footing for 2020 as he tries to, excuse me, 2021 as he tries to catch up to Federer and Nadal who each have 20 grand slams now. He's, he's still at um, 17. So I think we're at a point and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing something, but I think we're at a point where unless the tournament is on clay, I mean, I think Djokovic should be the favorite no matter what, even if we're talking about Wimbledon, I think Djokovic should be the favorite. Uh, Even if we're talking about grass court tournaments as well, I don't see any, uh, any scenario where any other player should be favored over him other than Nadal and clay. So what will it take to beat Djokovic? I think, um, the first thing it's going to take, it's going to take courage from the sense of you've got to, you know, you've got to step out of your uh, comfort zone a little bit and go for, uh, shots that you're not used to going for and you have to go for them on a more regular basis than you're used to going, going for them for. Um, and it's probably going to take a little bit of luck. If you're playing him, you're going to hope for a slightly off day. You're going to hope for, uh, maybe for, for Novak to be feeling something physically, um, and, but other than that, I, I, I would be, I would be very surprised if, if Djokovic doesn't win this event. I uh, really think he's uh, the strong favorite here. Okay, Nick, my Djokovic question is really a question which could be applied more broadly to the tour, but I'm, I, let's, let's use Djokovic though, as the, as the reference point for this, you know, pandemic tennis has involved tennis without fans or, or at least with very few fans. So you haven't had, roaring capacity crowds at matches. What do, do you think that Novak Djokovic needs a, a loud crowd uh, to function at his very best in matches? Because, you know, people will say, well, the crowds are usually against Djokovic. True enough, but he's so good at feeding off the crowd uh, in kind of an adversarial way that it gives him energy and it sometimes galvanizes his focus what do you think about that? And, and really, as we peek into 2021, uh, do, you, do you have any sense of which players will or won't benefit from, you know, playing without fans, and which creates a very different dynamic? You know, it's, you're really now attuned to your own inner voice as a tennis player. You're not really – there's no – there are no externals to draw energy from. That has to come from within. So – what do you think this means for Djokovic? And if you'd like, what do you think it means for anyone on tour uh, heading into next year? Well, I think, you know, what it makes me think of is the first thing I thought of when you were saying that was how John McEnroe used to feed off just getting, you know, angry. 
um, with someone or something and, uh, and how that negative energy of getting like pissed off used to actually help him and help him play better. Whereas for most people that does not help. Uh, so yeah, if you look at that U S open final from 2015, where Djokovic really, really, uh, had the crowd against him in New York against Federer and he responded to it very, very well. And he won the match in four sets. Uh, you know, you might, you, you can argue that crowd, the crowds being against him had helped him win some matches, but I, I would probably argue that he was, he'd be winning those, those matches, uh, in either case, and I think if you look at the French Open and the U.S. Open, if it wasn't for the Carreno Busta, you know, incident, Djokovic probably wins that tournament. And at the French Open, he ran into just an, pretty much an unbeatable player, the best player on on any given surface, playing his highest level of tennis. So there really wasn't much else differently that he could have done there. As far as players in the future feeding off the crowd. Uh, I honestly don't think that overall, I really don't think it makes that big of a difference. Um, I think the one thing that I think the one area where it will help players is let's say you have someone who's ranked like 50th in the world playing uh, a, a, a Federer, Nadal or Djokovic in, in, in the first round or second round of the, of a, of a grand slam. I think the pressure that they feel is going to be significantly reduced since they don't have all those people watching them. So I think that's one area where it could help. And maybe for someone like a Rublev playing a Djokovic in the quarterfinal, uh, maybe that in where he might feel a lot of pressure, maybe not having fans there will help. Uh, but it, it could go the other way as well. Uh, remains, remains to be seen. It's an interesting uh, thing to consider, something that I'm not really sure I, I know the answer to at all. Well, I, I could ask, yeah, I could ask Nick one last question. And for any of the eight players, Nick, what is something that uh, a tangible goal or an advancement in terms of tactical understanding in a matchup, uh, a match victory, uh, or just some part of their game that can use a little bit of tweaking? What, what's something that any of these players need to take out of the ATP finals heading into 2021? Something that, you know, you, you can really gain – uh, a certain benefit from this tournament and use that as a stepping stone for the coming season. Hmm. Yeah. Oh man. There's, there's definitely uh you don't have to, I mean, any one of the eight doesn't have, we're not talking all eight. We're not talking six mm -hmm. or four, just one. Sure. Yeah. I'm just trying to pick what I think would be the, the best one. Um, I'll give you the two that I think are the two biggest. I would say number number one would be I want to see if Nadal is going to be more aggressive. I really think in my head that's the biggest biggest question going into this tournament. I want to see if he's going to uh, to play like he did in at the French Open or is he going to keep playing like he did in Paris against Zverev where he definitely was not as aggressive. So that would be the first one. And the second one is I'm really curious to see how Rublev, who won five tournaments this year and won 40 matches, is going to do in a tournament against the other best players in the world where he has to face all of them back to back to back. I mean, when he's playing most of his matches, he's not facing these guys on a regular basis. He's never faced Djokovic. Um, so seeing how his game holds up under this kind of uh, scrutiny and this kind of pressure against the best players in the world, I'm really curious to see how he plays. I'm wondering if he's going to really try to ramp up his aggression, uh, if he's going to really go bigger on his serve, 
how he's going to approach these matches. Is he going to look to be played with some more controlled aggression? Uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see what his approach is in, in these matches. And I'd love to see him play Djokovic just to see how he handles that from a tactical perspective. Uh, before we part, uh, I would just uh, make it fun. What is uh, the best match you guys have seen at the World Tour Finals? I can go first. Uh, oh. I'm an old-time classic guy, so I think Sampras, uh, Becker, 96. I think that has to be the best, one of the best five-setters, even including many slam matches, because that was indoors, and Becker just gets broken in the penultimate game of the match, where Sampras wasn't even coming close to breaking him. I think that's like I think that match has been showcased many times by the uh, tennis TV network as well. So, Matt, do you want to add a memory before we wrap uh, the show? I'd say the Nadal Murray semifinal a few years ago. I forget which year, but that that was a pretty crazy match. Twenty ten, yeah. Yeah, the one that I remember. Uh, I'm actually. Hold on, I'm just gonna look it up really quickly. Yeah, okay. So that was in 2016. The, the semifinal, I was going to go with the one Magic said, actually. But my second choice was going to be the murray Raonic semifinal from 2016. That was seven, the last two sets were 7-6. And uh, the match was like, I forget it, maybe it was like four hours long. But uh, it was pretty insane. Uh, so that was, that was one that, I, that, that, comes, that comes to mind um, as, the, as the best match I've seen at the, the World Tour Finals. But that's a... Really good question. I mean, I'm sure you guys remember the one year, I, I think it was 2014, where there was, like, no good matches. Like, the whole week, everything was uh, was straight sets, which is obviously very ironic, given that you have the, the best players in the world. Till you got Federer Wawrinka in the semis. <laughs> right, yes. And then you had that, that one. All right, so on that note, I think it's Saqib, Matt, and Nick. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with another episode to wrap up the ATP finals. And it's bye for now.